a warm welcome. You're joining us once again at Hyde Park on Other Dharana 24 this week. Well, as economists and experts claim that the International Monetary Fund Extended Fund Facility is crucial for Sri Lanka's economic revival, there are other experts and economists at the same time who say that the package will not address long-term reforms that are required by the economy and the crucial um, conditioning factors that are required for sustainable economic growth. Now, amidst key uh, reforms such as tax hikes, rate hikes, deliberations on state-owned enterprise restructuring, a new central bank act, and um, other factors that are required to secure an IMF bailout package for the 17th time, of course, in Sri Lanka. Uh, we're talking about how we should ensure economic growth and sustainability as Sri Lanka looks to come out of the current crisis. I've invited to join us tonight in studio, Professor Sirimal Aberatna, Senior Professor in uh, Economics at the Department of Economics of the University of Colombo. A very warm welcome to you, Thank Professor you. Aberatna. And joining us virtually, we have with us Indian development economist uh, and also um, a professor at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, Professor Jayati Ghosh. A very warm welcome to you for joining Thank us. Thank you. Yes, from India. Um, and I think um, we've spoken about this matter at large, but essentially now, what next for Sri Lanka with the IMF program? I'd like to start off with Professor Sirimal here in Colombo. Uh, what next do you think is for us? While we say IMF is necessary, but others say, no, this won't address uh, the, the problems that Sri Lanka faces. I would like to share this view that mm -hmm. the IMF is not the, the entire solution that we require. It's good to go with the program with the IMF for a couple of reasons. Number one, it will improve our international image. Number, uh, number two, uh, we are entering to a program with them so that we can follow up this program uh, to ensure stability because uh, we all know that Sri Lanka does not have a good track record in following programs consistently in the past. So it is good to have a program as such. Number three, uh, probably people like it much more than any other. We can borrow again. And <laughs> so with these things, it is okay to go with the IMF, but IMF is not the rescue package that Sri Lanka needs. We have a dollar problem. Fundamentally, our economic crisis is a dollar crisis. We don't have enough foreign exchange to pay for our borrowing. So that is where the problem starts. You can attach it to other uh, other issues, uh, issues uh, like the fiscal problem and uh, economic uh, other kind of uh, stability problems. But the IMF program does not address this fundamental issue. It is about the stability. The fundamental issue of the dollar crisis dollar that crisis. we face. So mm -hmm. we have to earn dollars and that is how we can come out of the crisis. And until and unless we go there, earning dollars uh, and to earn dollars, we should have investment. Okay. So until and unless we address this fundamental issue and it is difficult to come out of the crisis only with the IMF package. 
Right. I'd like to turn to Professor Jayathi Ghosh, who's joining us virtually from India. Uh, Professor Ghosh, what next for us here? I think Professor Abhiratna spoke about why uh, the IMF program is not sufficient to address Sri Lanka's fundamental crisis. What is your opinion here? You know, I completely agree with him. In fact, I would go a bit further. I would say that the IMF conditions in this current situation are likely to make the problem worse. So I, if, if I were a Sri Lankan today, I would not be celebrating the fact that the government has done whatever it takes to sign on to this loan, because I think the implications are actually going to be very bad for the macroeconomy. Consider what it is asking for. In a country in which you have already 60% inflation and 90% food inflation, where you've already had electricity hikes, power hikes, you've already had fuel price hikes, and ordinary people are suffering very, very badly, you are raising interest rates, you're raising power rates once again, you are asking for a free floating exchange rate that will mean that the Sri Lankan rupee can depreciate further, adding to the imported inflation. Now, in fact, it's likely that the inflation is going to come down now anyway, because the main reason for the inflation was the big devaluation that occurred last year. Now that that devaluation is over and done with and global prices of food and fuel have come down, inflation is likely to come down from those terrible peaks. But so you don't need very tight monetary policy. You don't need to increase interest rates. What will those interest rate increases do? They will destroy micro, small and medium enterprises who are already struggling, as we all know. And that will, of course, impact employment. And that in turn means that economic activity will not recover. Now, in that situation, to expect that this particular approach is going to bring stability because foreign investment will start flowing in is ridiculous. I'm sorry. It hasn't worked in most countries where it has been attempted, and it is unlikely to work here. And in fact, when you look at the pattern... International image. I'm sorry to interrupt. Sorry to interrupt. Just to add to that, what about Sri Lanka's image internationally, Professor Ghosh? Um, uh, about Sri Lanka maintaining that, uh, that, that uh, image with international creditors and ensuring that there is some sort of guarantee moving forward. So, you know, basically, what do international creditors look at? They look at things like the debt to GDP ratio or the debt service to GDP ratio. What has happened in this right now in Sri Lanka is that your debt to GDP ratio has worsened even when your total nominal debt has come down because your GDP has fallen so much. I mean, there's a kind of 20% decline in GDP over the past two years. And that has made your debt to GDP ratio much worse, made your debt service to GDP ratio much worse. That will not get better if you implement a program that causes your GDP to fall further. So it's not in your interest. You need to grow out of the debt. You do not need to push the economy into further decline. I'm not even getting into the distributional aspects. I mean, they are severe, right? The rich who basically were responsible for the crisis, the elites, whether they were corrupt or not, that who largely were responsible for and benefited for the crisis are not going to be affected. It is the ordinary people who are already suffering who will be even worse affected. But the main point is that macroeconomically, this doesn't make sense. And I think it's quite interesting when you look at it. Look, since 2016, Sri Lanka has been borrowing to pay its debts. It's a Ponzi scheme, as they call it. It's completely unviable. You have you, you floated international sovereign bonds so you could pay off the multilateral creditors. Then you went to the bilateral creditors to help you pay off the international sovereign bonds, and so on. This, this thing has been going on now for eight, nine years. 
the solution to that is not to say, let's open up to more debt. The solution is to clean up your act and see how you can actually reduce that external debt dependence, which is possible because you do earn foreign exchange. You do have exports, you do have remittances, you do have tourism revenues. It's possible to think of ways of actually making your external balance something that is viable instead of saying, oh, no, no, we have to somehow get more debt. Now, consider the IMF is going to give you, what, 2.9 billion over four years. That's a really small amount, right? It's what? It's about, I mean, it's about 760 million every year. When you already have an ISB payment due of 1.3 billion in April. So in any case, this is not really resolving your foreign exchange problem. What it is doing is forcing you to take measures which are, of course, going to make your people suffer more, but are also going to make your economy further enter a downswing. Why would you want to do that? What is the rationality in going in for a set of policies that would reduce your possibility of growth? On the assumption that somehow doing that will make foreign capital come flooding in. Capital does not come into declining economies. Capital comes into economies that are growing. So you have to make your economy grow. That's why I think what's next for Sri Lanka, if it follows the IMF strategy, it's actually very, very bad news. There are options, there are alternatives of way of actually addressing this problem and get on to a growth path, a growth trajectory that would allow you to recover. Right. Thank you for your initial thoughts, Professor Ghosh. Uh, Professor Abiratna, now, can Sri Lanka, as Professor Ghosh said, we need to look at ways to, to ensure that the economy grows, but is there an option for us to make the economy grow without an IMF program at this juncture, when Sri Lanka has fallen into a deep economic crisis and you need a bailout? Yes, IMF is basically working on the fiscal side yes. and also related other areas like dealing with the government, the public sector, uh, the enterprises and their problems. So uh, one thing is good actually, of course the with the IMF we would be able to borrow more. So if we end up with uh, piling up our foreign debt uh, again and again, so that is not going to solve the problem. As Professor Ghosh also mentioned, it's going to make us worse, our situation worse than where we were. Anyway, uh, going with the program with the IMF is important because it will, as you rightly said earlier, it will improve our international image with the creditors and also uh, it will help us to improve our investment climate. But I know that all these conditions that the government has done so far, worked with so far, raising lead prices and raising fuel prices and also dealing with this uh, crisis situation with the high interest rates and all these things, uh, uh, they are related to a fundamental problem and we should have done those things quite earlier and even the tax net. The, I don't agree with the way that the government has worked with the, the, the increase in taxes in this country, whereas there are millions of people who can pay taxes in this country and the government has increased it only for 500,000 people who are already having tax files with the uh, IRD in Inland Revenue Department, so which has made their lives also worse than they were. So easier things have been done so far, but the, not the difficult thing, I think. 
the government should have expanded our tax base to cover the entire population, and which whereas the government is not trying to do that. So uh, these kind of uh, difficult things and electricity increase in electricity prices and fuel prices. We haven't worked with the cost side, cost of production side, cost of refinery and all these things, whereas there are a lot of inefficiencies, ineffectiveness and corruption and open secret uh, problems. So we haven't done anything at least so far up to now but we are still talking about those things. So those are the more fundamental, difficult uh, issues that the government should address. But even to cover all these things, we have raised the prices enormously to be in line with the IMF conditions. But are you suggesting, Professor Abiratna, if, uh, if we do not comply with IMF uh, uh, expectations to meet the requirements for a, a prerequisite, as a prerequisite for the IMF bailout arrangement, that there is any solution for Sri Lanka in the interim. I understand that Professor Ghosh and yourself, you uh, opt for a, an alternative solution than the IMF. But what in the interim? What do no. we do in the interim? I think IMF, uh, going with the IMF program would help us to achieve a sustainable solution because of the nothing other than this improving the international image of Sri Lanka so that we would be able to attract investment and then to work on that. But there too, we have a long, long way to go reforming our policies, regulatory mechanism to make this country an investment center. Uh, and with, with, with that, only with that we will come out of the crisis and not with the IMF program. Mm -hmm. That is for sure. Uh, before we talk about making Sri Lanka an investment uh, center, I'd also like to ask you, what do you think we could do in terms of meeting those IMF uh, requirements? I think you pointed out where Sri Lanka missed in uh, creating, uh, in, in uh, expanding the tax base to other uh, factors, but there are requirements that the government has to meet in terms of fulfilling IMF uh, bailout package uh, prerequisite. Why I like the IMF program basically is that Sri Lanka does not have a good uh, track record in uh, adopting a consistent policy package, regulate reform package, and that's why, because for the last 25, 30 years, we didn't have any reform package purpose, purposefully and uh, bold reform <laughs> package. We had only twice in our history, 77 and 89, and after that, we abandoned our reform package and we were working, we, we, we were feeling good and even people asked, okay, prices have to be reduced and the government promised, okay, we will reduce the fuel prices, we will give you electric, electricity at low cost and all these things we have, uh, we have agreed with our politicians. So these are basically a political problem. So all these problems got accumulated to this point. Mm -hmm. Whether it is this government or any other government, they have to respond to accumulated problems. So that obviously they are going to be a problem uh, because the public has to fasten their belt. But at the same time, I would say that this is uh, there is another side to these things. That is the reform side, and reform side should come in to make things easier for. But I also know that IMF does not consider the political repercussions, social repercussions of their uh, 
uh, of their the program and how it is how our public is going to respond to that and if things go worse of course and these are 50 50 chance and that you would fall in this side or the other side mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, i'd like to turn to professor jayati goshe i think uh, uh, you've been talking about the repercussions, but what really are the social and economic repercussions for Sri Lanka? But let's let's just uh, also try to bring comparison from other nations that um, not just have uh, fallen into further crisis, but also other countries that uh, were supported by an IMF program and what they did different and how different their situation was for them to benefit from an IMF program. Well, there are many ways of looking at it and many examples of countries who've done IMF programs. When they work is when they are part of a strategy that the government has, uh, has elaborated on its own with broad political support. That is not the case today. You have an unelected government that more or less reflects the same interest groups that were in the previous government against which there was a very large people's movement. And therefore, you have a government that doesn't really have political legitimacy attempting to impose really dramatic changes. I won't call them reforms. I will call them the standard austerity package that basically has very severe income distribution effects. It hits the poor much more than it hits the rich. And particularly the middle classes and ordinary workers are the worst affected. So you are already seeing a very significant increase in hunger. Uh, the uh, UN agency has estimated that one in three out of every Sri Lankans is, is going to need emergency assistance, humanitarian assistance. You have significant increases in unemployment. You have declines in money wages and in real wages of about 40%. You have inadequate access to basic medicine. I mean, it's clearly there is a humanitarian tragedy unfolding in Sri Lanka. You also have a politically aware population that has already very successfully done a peaceful Aragalaya. But, you know, this is tinderbox to impose on a, a citizenry that thought that they had managed to actually undo some of the damage that their political leaders were doing on them. And I think corruption was only one of the concerns. It was really economic mismanagement. To follow on that with equally brutal, if not more brutal, policies and tell them that, well, you know, now you have to tighten your belt. When their belts have already been tightened, when they know that the elites are getting away with it, with illicit financial flows continue, there is no wealth tax to speak of, that uh, re export receipts are still not being repatriated, all of these things are known. Trade unions are talking about it, social movements are talking about it, people are talking about it. That is a recipe for massive unrest. But what I want to emphasize is that, of course, it is likely to unleash, I would argue, all kinds of political and social turmoil if you do try and implement this kind of package, because it cannot generate growth. It can only generate greater suffering. And you can't tell people you have to keep suffering because at some point down the road, foreign, foreign investors will suddenly love you. What is even worse is that it, it, because it doesn't generate growth, it's not going to attract foreign private investment that is expected. What you would get is people coming and buying up your companies at bargain basement prices, fire sales of domestic assets. That's not what you want. You want productive assets being generated. Think what you do when you raise electricity prices and, and all of these prices, you raise the costs for small and medium businesses. They're the ones who are doing the exporting. Their costs go up. 
then the only way you can counter that is with a further devaluation of the currency, which is now going to be a market-determined exchange rate. And then that market-determined exchange rate will generate further cost inflation. I mean, it is a strategy that makes absolutely no macroeconomic sense. And as a result of that, I think, in fact, you know, China's approach to this in the debtor group that has been discussing this makes a lot of sense. They're saying, we don't believe your estimates. They're saying to the IMF, which, frankly, many more other creditors should be saying, they're saying to the IMF that, listen, we don't trust your debt sustainability estimates because you are saying that you're going to generate a primary budget surplus by 2025. You're saying that without dramatic re restructuring and reduction of the entire debt, you can somehow put Sri Lanka on a debt path by imposing this kind of austerity and rising prices upon the people. We don't believe you. We don't think it's feasible or sustainable. So please tell us exactly how you have arrived at these. Please tell us what kinds of crazy assumptions you're making to think that this is viable. I, I actually think that's a reasonable response to this. Right. And the Professor Sirimal Abirath, I'd like to um, take the same question and raise the same, but add to it. Uh, you spoke about making Sri Lanka a center for investment or an investment center. Again, uh, Professor Jayati Ghosh says productive assets being generated is not uh, looked at productively um, here. So what's really um, happening here with the IMF program? Can Sri Lanka benefit? I think we spoke about that. But can we draw also comparisons from nations which have implemented IMF programs have succeeded? But what was the recipe there? Well, uh, my view is that it is not that IMF has been doing bad things all over the world, everywhere. It has done mistakes. It has done good things. And its own approach has also been changing over the years. And so we have seen all these things among these things. But one of the best examples that I can think of right now is how it supported uh, Thailand when that was in 1997 when Thailand was caught up in this uh, East Asian financial crisis, the Bath collapse, and IMF supported. But the good thing about it is actually it's not only IMF, but Thailand also made its own effort to come out of the crisis. And that pro problem spread from Thailand to the other uh, Southeast Asian countries, like Malaysia, Indonesia, and all these countries around them. So, but the good thing about this program is that after uh, getting the IMF support in 1997, up to now, I, the Thailand government did not go to the IMF. Mm -hmm. So it has been so long. So Thailand has been managing well and then improving its economy well. But it started with IMF program in 1997 when the Thai economy collapsed. So there have been good programs everywhere, but we can't say that it's going to rescue the country and it is our own effort, then we have to emphasize that May part. May I ask first. what these reforms are? We're talking about Thailand. Let's take that as a case. What are these reforms you're talking about? We're talking about structural reforms, economic reforms that are required going yes. forward for medium to long-term growth and sustainability of the economy. But what did Thailand do that we are not doing right now? Yes. Thailand uh, did... Uh, follow the export-oriented industrialization process and it opened the door for investments. And with all these things, the Thailand economy could grow over the years and during the last. In fact, Thai economy was 
far behind Sri Lanka 25 years ago. And, but it has now it is far ahead of Sri Lanka because we haven't done those things in our, in, in our capacity here. The, by the term reform, we are talking about basically our economic policies. Okay. Sri Lanka is not an open economy anymore. And by uh, the regulatory side, and these, uh, all the indicators show that our regulatory mechanism is complicated and not conducive to achieve economic growth, not conducive to uh, sustain uh, investment promotion. At the same time, uh, uh, one of the major problems have been that uh, the growth of our corruption. And that's why actually maybe for the first time the IMF has also brought out uh, that we need to reduce corruption, vulnerability as a condition. I haven't seen it before, but this time. However, uh, the government has not yet, I hope the government is working on that condition as well. But that is basically related to the government as I asked. But, but how do you think fiscal. a country like Sri Lanka could take uh, the first step towards uh, eliminating corruption and, and, exactly. and putting it down? Exactly. We need to improve our law and order. We need to improve our policy reform. That's why I'm saying that policies and reforms and also the institutions that we need to reform. This, this is the part that we have to do. It's the much more difficult part, actually. And Fulfilling the conditions of the IMF, to my understanding, it is easier. You raise the taxes, raise the prices of fuel and electricity and all these things. You don't look at the political and social repercussions of that, and then you think that you are right, doing the right thing. No, you haven't started the right thing yet. Sri Lanka aims to exit bankruptcy by year 2026. Let's talk about how possible this is and what could Sri Lanka I, needs I to do. Could I just come in a little bit uh, on the Thailand case, if you don't mind? Yes, I, I think, uh, Professor Gosh, um, we will come back after this short break to uh, bring those thoughts uh, to our viewers. We'll be back after this break at Hyde Park. Welcome back. We are in conversation with a panel of experts, Professor Sinimal Aberatna, the Senior Professor in uh, Economics at the Department of Economics of the University of Colombo, as well as Indian Development Economist, Professor Jayati Ghosh, joining us here at Hyde Park to talk about what next for Sri Lanka beyond IMF. Is Sri Lanka on track for sustainable economic growth? I think, uh, Professor Ghosh, you wanted to add something uh, to uh, our last uh, discussion pertaining to economies that have uh, su successfully implemented the IMF program. At the same time, I'd like to also add to it about economic reforms going forward, structural reforms that we're talking about. What are these and, and how far are we in achieving these as a country? Yes, uh, thank you. You know, I want to just pick up on the example of Thailand, which I agree is a country that recovered from the crisis and has since then never needed to go to the IMF. But I do believe that the nature of that recovery was quite different. And I have a couple of books, in fact, on Thailand and Southeast Asia, which uh, have gone into great detail about this. But essentially what happened is that when Sri Lanka approached the IMF, they did all of the usual requirements, the same kinds of things they have asked Sri Lanka to do, raise the electricity, raise the other prices of the utilities, 
um, reduce wages, cut the fiscal spending, reduce public employees, and so on and so forth. All of the usual um, things. Thailand did all of those things, and the economy got worse and worse and worse. So while they implemented all the measures, all the indicators they were looking at kept deteriorating to the point where in one and a half years, they had to sign seven, seven different MOUs with the IMF because they were following what the IMF said, but all the indicators just kept getting worse. So the IMF had to come back and sign a new MOU saying, okay, we're making that indicator now a lower level, a worse level, and so on, seven times in one and a half years. It is only with the Miyazawa plan, which was an initiative of Japan, which provided resources to Malaysia, Thailand, Indonesia. It is only with the Miyazawa plan that Thailand was able to grow out of the crisis. It was not because of the IMF. The Miyazawa plan allowed the Thai government to increase its public spending, not cut it down, to actually enable the growth to revive. That was absolutely critical. You do not get a revival of the economy without someone somewhere increasing their spending. You can't push everybody's incomes down and then expect the economy to grow. So it was basically the Miyazawa initiative that enabled the recovery in Thailand and Malaysia, and that's quite well documented now. And Thailand learned its lesson because it never, it ensured that it would never actually need to go to the IMF. And it did that by ensuring current account surpluses. Now, what does that mean? It means that it's not necessarily that you have to complete only focus on attracting foreign capital. You have to have a strategic focus on the kind of foreign capital you attract, how you enter the global value chains. For that, you need infrastructure, you need logistics, you need the investment that will enable that. Then how do you ensure that you don't spend more on imports than you are actually able to export? And for that, you need to ensure that you have some controls, which they did on imports. So it's not the case that you fully liberalize and then you wait for foreign capital to come. Foreign capital comes to growing economies. Foreign capital comes to economies that have good infrastructure, good logistics, good, healthy, educated workers. And that's where Thailand has actually gained because they spent on education. They have spent massively on health. They have a very, very excellent public health program the 32 baht scheme where anybody can go and get treated for 32 baht for anything, whether it's a common cold or cancer. So that's what they did. That's really the secret, secret of their success. It wasn't the standard IMF package. That actually made things worse for them. It's only when they got out of that IMF package that they were able to grow and have made sure they never need to go for another IMF package. Yeah. What mentioned... I'm suggesting for Sri Lanka is something similar, that don't don't fall into a trap where you just keep making things worse and worse and worse for yourself. You actually forge an alternative path where you try and ensure that your current account is in balance. And Sri Lanka can do that. You stress on discipline here. Uh, Professor Aberat Natu mentioned uh, that Sri Lanka is, doesn't have the most uh, favorable track record in terms of discipline adhering to IMF programs, which is why we have had to have uh, 17 programs. Um, going forward, I think we're talking about a social market economy, but with the tax hikes to uh, these current uh, changes that we are bringing in, can we achieve those higher living standards that we're talking about um, so that people can live the aspirations they have? Well, the IMF also never asks us, you haven't implemented our program for 16 <laughs> times, so how? would you ensure that you are going to Im 
implement it on the 17th program. So I hope that with this uh, program, we will never go back to IMF on the 18th time <laughs> in the near future, because that's quite easily we can fall into that trap. Okay. If we not to fall into that trap, actually what we need is to improve what you said. Okay. And we need to improve our productive base and we need to ensure well, the social market economy, this is not something strange for Sri Lanka. I know this term came from recently from uh, the German experience, and uh, that is actually the market economy, and with the government intervention to ensure the, the equity, okay. uh, social justice. So for that kind of economic model, we call it social market economy, and that has been promoted quite a lot in this country too. So I have no any disagreement with that. And in fact, we also had a, a good social welfare program for a long time. And so that we need to build on that. And that's why Sri Lanka has a good uh, social standard, health and education, as well as other uh, human development standards, along with uh, slower economic growth. But we need to improve on that part now. Slower economic growth, we have to make it a higher economic growth, which requires uh, we, uh, while we are dealing with our current crisis and the debt problem and with all these things, but the answer to those things is that actually we need to improve our economy with export base. Without okay. exports, countries cannot grow. And we look at big countries like China or India. Well, India is obviously the, the, the diff quite little different from Chinese growth. If we compare the two, Indian growth is, India is growing fast now in the recent during the recent years, and it has been based on domestic demand uh, much more than China did, because Chinese growth was uh, dependent on export growth, and also regional integration. Sri Lanka, being a small country, we can't avoid <laughs> growing without export market. We cannot build our ports uh, without ships and uh, it's airports without planes and conference halls without conference. Because you generate rupees, rupee income, you add, we have been adding rupee income generation activities during the last 10, 12 years, but they did not generate dollars. Okay. So we borrow from foreign sources and then invested here in those sectors which we call in economics non-tradable sectors, which generated actually rupee incomes for the domestic economy, whereas now we have to pay those dollar borrowings in dollars, in terms of dollars. So we can't do that either. To make sure that sustainable growth will be achieved while paying those, dealing with those foreign borrowings, we need to ensure export-oriented economic growth. But do we have a conducive environment set right e now to get there? Exactly. That is the point. That is the more difficult part that any government should ensure that we should have a uh, conducive environment with policy reforms, establishing our uh, open economy again, bringing it back to our uh, policy agenda, and also uh, making things easier for investors to, for the, those people to make economic decisions and with a very simple and straightforward regulatory mechanism mm -hmm. and dealing with corruption. So these are the fundamental issues that we need to deal with and in fact more difficult things.
Right. Uh, Professor Ghosh, uh, how, how do you uh, add to this part about uh, Sri Lanka creating a conducive environment and also going forward to uh, create an investment-centric um, uh, economy? You know, you cannot get more investment in a declining economy. I mean, if, if the idea is that you will only operate for the global market, and you, certainly you have textiles, you have tea, you have uh, tourism, you have a bunch of sectors that are only looking at the global market. You are already, in fact, very competitive because of the dramatic devaluation that you've had. But if you add to domestic inflation, you will not be competitive anymore. So number one obvious lesson, do not actually add to things that add costs for your industries. What are you doing? You are instead increasing the prices of power, increasing the prices of fuel, which add costs to your domestic industries. Of course, they're hardship for the people, but they also add to domestic costs. Mm -hmm. Second, you must actually make sure that you have the right approach in terms of ensuring the good social and political conditions, a cohesive society, because foreign investment is not attracted to an unstable polity in which people are disaffected, where income distribution is extremely unequal, and where there is the potential for extreme social and political responses because of a general sense of a lack of legitimacy of the government. So you really need to take on board the rights of the people. And I, here I'm not saying be nice to people, be kind to people. Recognize the social and economic rights of the people. That is not being done in the current phase. The whole obsession is about attracting foreign investors without realizing that foreign investors, it's a very complex thing. Foreign investors come to growing economies. Foreign right. investors come to economies with excellent logistics. Co foreign investors come to economies that are already kind of close to the value chains. Mm -hmm. You have many of those advantages. You would attract those anyway. Right. I'd but like to add to that too, down, Professor Gosh. If I could uh, just, just finish my sentence. If you push down your domestic workforce, if you disenfranchise people economically, that mm -hmm. doesn't help foreign investors. That makes right. them a bit more I, I want to ask you, you work very closely with China. Um, there are concerns about uh, China's influence in Sri Lanka, the Belt and Road Initiative, and also in terms of uh, debt restructuring, how genuine China is in engaging with IMF's uh, requirements. Uh, what is your opinion here and the benefit of the Belt and Road Initiative here in Sri Lanka uh, or uh, any disadvantages Sri Lanka may face going forward? You know, I think the, uh, the Chinese involvement has been extremely complex as it has been across Asia. I think there's no doubt about it. I mean, certainly the the port, the Hambamdota port, it hasn't been necessarily beneficial at all for Sri Lanka. There are many other potentially white elephant projects that have also happened, occurred because of Chinese engagement. And that is true, not just in Sri Lanka, but across many countries in Asia. But with respect to the debt, uh, both China and India have extended moratoriums to Sri Lanka. Both of them have extended moratoriums for a couple of years. India has said they are okay with the IMF program. China has said they don't believe the numbers. And honestly, I don't believe the numbers either. I don't believe Sri Lanka can achieve a primary surplus, uh, a fiscal surplus, and uh, as a share of GDP, improve the fiscal deficit uh, 
if in fact it does the strategies that are being proposed today, because I think those will cause GDP to decline dramatically. So I do believe that the Chinese uh, skepticism about the IMF program is justified. However, the extent to which it's willing to cooperate, that is a much more complex thing. That unfortunately Sri Lanka is caught in, in a geopolitical mess, shall we say. It is a very important strategic place for the Indian Ocean and in general. And there are great power ambitions that relate to Sri Lanka. It seems to be at the moment caught in between them. I would argue that this is possibly a way in which Sri Lanka can use the fact that it is geostrategically very important and sitting in a very important place to actually uh, make the creditors come round in different ways, to deal with different creditors individually and make sure that, in fact, the Sri Lankan interests are taken on board and the people of Sri Lanka's interests are taken on board. Mm -hmm. I think the Chinese up. involvement is complex. Right. Professor Sidima Labiratna, uh, while adding to that, I'd also like to take you back to your comments on tax reforms in Sri Lanka. We have a few minutes uh, on the program. Um, you mentioned that Sri Lanka has failed uh, an opportunity where we could have um, enhanced or uh, widened the tax net, the tax base in Sri Lanka. While we talk about higher taxes, the IMF recently provided an explanation on why they suggest uh, tax hikes in Sri Lanka, saying lower levels of taxes has created an imbalance in the economy, and this is to fix it. Uh, how do you respond to that? And at the same time, uh, let's look at some of the tax reforms that you suggest government should urgently take. Yes, I think our tax system is highly distorted and uh, not justifiable because of their injustice way of uh, affecting the people. Uh, right now, it is, uh, as I heard, Inland Revenue Department has only 500,000 tax files, whereas uh, the, when the tax rates have been raised, uh, I mean, the personal income tax rates have been raised recently. It affects only these uh, 500,000 people, and of course it affects everybody who earns more than 100,000, but what is the mechanism to expand the tax net? This is the technological era that we are living in, and that technology-based system we should have been in implemented in this country to record people's income and wealth, and this is a small nation. Not like India, this is a small nation. Even India is implementing Aadhaar and PAN and these kind of digitalized systems to uh, expand their, the more, make it more effective. But Sri Lanka, with 22 million people, it is easier for the government to know people's income and wealth, whereas we haven't initiated any system as such. So the increase in taxes affect only a minority, whereas there are a lot of millions of free riders, to my understanding. So it, it's, it has to be expanded. So this system has to be developed in Sri Lanka. And that is one thing on the part of, uh, on the part of tax reforms. Because the government doesn't know people's income and wealth, the easier way is to tax uh, goods and services. That's why you have a, uh, 75, 80% of tax revenue comes from indirect taxes, mm -hmm. and which has made our open economy much more distorted than in other countries. Now, if we are the we are the one of the number one countries in this region with the highest tax revenue from as a percentage of total tax revenue, highest tax revenue from the 
international trade. And I think it is uh, more than 20% right now. 20% uh, of uh, the total tax revenue, whereas in all the other countries, uh, including India, it is around 5%. And for fast-growing countries in East Asia, it is around 2 to 2, 3% and 4%, not more than that. Sri Lanka has more than 20%. Why? Because of our distorted tax system. I think this has to be reformed. In fact, even now people, from the people's point of view, they are also not used to pay taxes. Not used to it, this sounds new. But yes, while talking about taxes, we just have uh, four minutes left on the show. So for your closing remarks, Professor Ghosh, I was talking about Sri Lanka planning to exit bankruptcy by year 2026. How achievable is this? And um, what is the next step for Sri Lanka? Two minutes. Yes, I think it is achievable, but it will need an entirely different strategy from the one that is currently being adopted. So it requires a change in the approach. It requires something that actually focuses on expanding domestic production, reducing domestic inequalities, less reliance on external debt, and particularly getting rid of the idea that you can keep just borrowing to repay your earlier debts, which is how Sri Lanka has been operating over the past decade. We know that a large part of those debts also were not just part of a broader corruption, but the corruption of the elite, and that they went into not just vanity product, projects, but also a lot of that was exported out of the country in terms of illicit financial flows. So these are things that can be corrected. That requires very significant political will. It requires possibly a change in the politics, in other words, in the, in the political leadership as well. But these are things that can easily be done. Sri Lanka can definitely chart an alternative path, but it cannot be done on the basis of the existing policies. Professor Sirimala Beratna, your thoughts? I also like to think positively and getting out of this crisis, but it doesn't mean that we are going back to 2019 level of economy. In fact, we will be even below that level. Mm -hmm. 2019 economy was not a good economy, and even not in 2018. But which means actually what I want to stress, the point that we need to go beyond recovery. And that going beyond recovery requires fundamental reforms. That is my last word. Thank you very much for your thoughts. We um, had joining us tonight at Hyde Park on Other Derana 24. Joining us from India virtually, Professor Jayati Ghosh, Indian development economist. Thank you very much for your time here at Hyde Park tonight. Thank and you. also, yes, thank you. And also we had with us Professor Sirimal Aberatna, Senior Professor in, Depart uh, in Economics at the University of Colombo. Thank you very much for joining us here at thank Hyde you. Park. Thank you. Um, we were talking about Sri Lanka's way out of the crisis, the IMF and sustainable uh, growth and reforms that are required in Sri Lanka. Um, we'll be back next week at the same time with yet another discussion at Hyde Park. Good night.